I think, to be honest, almost everyone, if not everyone, has at least some, at some point in their life, um, a sense of deep need for God, a sense of deep need to be, to be reconciled to God, to know God, to enjoy God, to feel that they have a secure relationship with God. For many people, that, that's a characteristic of their childhood. Um, but for many others, there, there are moments in adult life, at, at least sometimes fleeting, sometimes prolonged periods, when they feel the need to be united with God. And um, the, the sadness is that so many people, one way or another, don't have that need satisfied. One interesting person of that ilk, it seems to me, is the novelist Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan actually has no time at all for religion, but he is deeply and sensitively aware of our loss of God. Uh, that comes up a lot in many of his books, but one in particular is his book Saturday. Um, there we find a surgeon and his daughter whose lives are disrupted by a brutal thug called Baxter. He breaks into the home of the surgeon, strips the daughter naked in front of the whole family and he is about to rape her. He discovers that she is a poet, though, and um, perhaps in part to humiliate her just a little bit more, he asks her to read a poem for him. Instead of reading one, she recites one. Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach. Dover Beach was written um, by Arnold in the 19th century, and uh, it begins by describing the, the... the dropping tide in an evening at, uh, um, uh, on, on Dover. But then Arnold likens it to what he sees as being the receding tide of faith in Britain and in Europe. He writes this. The sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's sphere lay like folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, but let us be true to one another. For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. Poems, uh, Arnold's poem was incredibly prophetic, really of uh, how the 20th century would, uh, would develop. 
in wars and ignorant armies and loss of peace and certitude and, and so on. McEwen uses the poem in his book to describe something in this thug, Baxter. Baxter standing before the naked girl that he's about to rape. He's actually transfixed by the poem. He abandons his plan and for a moment he wants only that poem. McEwen comments in the, in the book. He says, The poem touched off in Baxter a yearning he could barely begin to define. Very interesting in, in McEwen's book, No One Finds Faith, No One Is Changed, The Thug is only transfixed for a moment and then goes about his thuggish ways. But McEwen has spotted something about human beings. He spotted this sense that people sometimes only for a moment glimpse something of the glory of what it might be. To know God, to be reconciled to God, to be confident in God. To have the sea of faith high again in their lives. Sorry Paul, I'm talking to everybody. Um, I'll talk to you later at the end. Romans says, it is a universal problem. But there is a way back. There is a way back to knowing God. To being reconciled to God. Paul describes it as the gospel. Paul has said, and if you've been here, you've probably felt the, the relentlessness of his argument as he's gone through chapters 1 and 2 and 3. He has said we are alienated from God because of our sin. It's not, it's not our ignorance. It's not because God sometimes, somehow has hidden himself um, where nobody can find him. He says some degree of knowledge of God is evident to all people, but because they don't follow that, they find themselves sinking further and further and further away from God. Our sin uh, may be gross sin, says Paul, or it may be the more subtle sin of hypocrisy. And then, uh, as we've seen, he says there is no wriggling out of this terrible reality. We are sinners. We are not good enough for God. We are separated from God. Because he, the just God, cannot come close to people like us. But there's a way back, says Paul. Our way back, of course, is always to try to be obedient to turn ourselves around, to try and make ourselves good enough. And Paul has blocked that, closed that door, saying, no, subtle or gross though our sin may be, nobody can make themselves into the kind of person who says, I'm good, I'm okay. Our way back will not work. 
The gospel is about God's way back into that relationship. And it is utterly, completely different. That's what he is going to explain to us this evening and what I want to um, unpack. How do we get back to God, into that relationship which so many people sense that they need? Firstly, he completes the argument that he's been been pursuing for the last several chapters in verses 9 to 20. He chooses a whole set of Old Testament purple passages, you might say, to make one single point. Let me read it again. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's chosen purple passages and he's modified and nuanced it in earlier earlier chapters. But here here is his conclusion. No one, but no one, can say they are good enough to stand before God. There is no one righteous, not even one. Notice he's chosen those Old Testament passages in part to demonstrate that is the conclusion of the Old Testament. Some people say the Old Testament shows us the way, all the things that we need to do to get right with God. It's, it, it's, it's, it's about how, how to get right with God. But its conclusion is not that. Its conclusion is we need another way. The Old Testament ends longing for some proper way back to God which no human being can find on their own. And quite explicitly, verse 20, Paul um, um, hammers it home, following a rule book will not do it. Verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, by following a rule book. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That is, the, that is the only ultimate good thing that it does. It shows us how we should behave, and it shows us that we cannot behave that way. Something else needs to happen if we're to get right with God. Something else needs to happen if Baxter's yearning is to be satisfied. But not only does the Old Testament um, point us to this dead end, this blind alley, it also anticipates a solution, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, the, 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 the Old Testament, both law and prophets, always was looking forward to this righteousness of God, this this way of being right with God that he is about to explain. And now he explains it. Verses 22 to 26. Here's God's way back to God then. Here's God's way to be reconciled with God. 
We are reconciled, he says first of all, through faith in Jesus. This righteousness, verse 22, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Through what, what, what is this faith in Jesus? Well, first, first of all, what is faith? Faith, faith is, a, is, a, is a whole, whole little bundle of things bound up into one. The New Testament uses it as a shorthand. On the one hand, it is, it is, it is confidence. It is having confidence in Jesus Christ. I have faith in my friend because I have confidence in my friend. And because it's um, a reasonable confidence, it is, it is also belief. I believe certain things about Jesus Christ, which is what gives me that confidence. More than that in the Bible... Um, Faith is not just not only confidence and, and a set of beliefs about Jesus Christ, it is a sense of uh, approval, affirmation, delight in those things that we trust. The Bible is quite clear actually that, that the devil has accurate beliefs about Jesus and in one sense a certain confidence about what he, what he can do, but he hates, hates it. True, true, true faith is confident and believes certain things about Jesus and loves it. You can see that this is the most beautiful truth in the world that he's going to explain. It is faith then in Jesus Christ. And he will unpack in just a moment, what um, particularly we need to believe and understand about Jesus to put our faith in him. But for uh, a moment, we need to look at the, the, the range of universals that he, he gives us, one after the other, to help us to see what a universal, glorious thing this is that God offers, God's way back to God. It is, he says, for everyone who believes it. Did you see that in verse 22? This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's not, about, it's not those who are good enough to get it and those who aren't good enough who are not, who don't. It is to everyone very good and very bad, who simply believes, who trusts, who has faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone, he says, has equal access to it. Verse 22 again. Um, if I can um, find it to all who believe, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Jews who had the enormous privilege of the, uh, the whole of the Old Testament being their literature. Gentiles who have relatively little understanding. There is no difference. Both of them can put their faith in Jesus Christ. Wise academics 
at Oxford University can put their faith in Jesus Christ. People with hardly any education at all and who can't read can put their faith in Jesus Christ. People with lives pretty well under control need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. People with lives chaotic beyond measure can put their faith in Jesus Christ. There is equal access to this way back to God. There is no difference. Notice as well, he says, there is an equal need for this way back to God. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That that is his, his, his brief summary of what he's been saying over three chapters. Everyone needs it. There is no hyper-religious person who does not need it. There is no innocent child that does not need it. There is, there, 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 there is no magnificently disciplined, kind, gentle person who does not need it. All need it. Because... No one is equal to coming in their own right into the presence of the glory of God. His glory is too bright, too perfect, too radiant for anyone on their own to come into his presence. And everyone who receives this way back to God, who embraces this way back to God, everyone receives it as a gift. Verse 23 again, sorry, verse 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. No one earns it. Everybody receives it as a gift. Anyone who tries to earn it fails to get it. Everyone who comes and says, please may I have it, receives it. Those are the universals then. Everyone who trusts receives it. Everyone has equal access to it. Everyone has equal need of it. Everyone receives it as a gift. How does it work then, this way back to God that is described as faith in Jesus Christ? How does it work? What's the mechanism? Is it some magic? No, it's not magic, says says Paul, or not in the way that you might think. It is a reasonable plan that God set forth. God decided, for instance, to... Uh, send Jesus to this earth for a particular purpose. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That word atonement comes from the Old Testament, you see. It, and, and, and it was associated with the whole sacrificial system of the temple where animals were sacrificed. And the basic picture that everyone um, in Israel was to 
to, to have in their minds was that these animals went up and were sacrificed at the temple in some way to pay for our sins. But of course they couldn't. How, 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 could, how could animals really pay for the sins of human beings? How, how could a third party, an innocent one of that, a lamb or a bull or a goat, somehow, um, some, somehow be accepted as a just substitute for our sins? It didn't work. It introduced some of the concepts, but it didn't work. So God sent Jesus. Jesus, you see, who in one sense is God, God the Son. But who, when he came to earth, became fully human. We didn't need an animal to die for our sins. No, human sins need a human payment. Here he is, Jesus We didn't need a third party to pay for our sins. Well, how could that work out? Our sin is against God, ultimately. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have offended against God. We have ignored God. We have walked away from God. We owe God. Unless God himself decides that he will pay the price that he justly demands. And so here is God himself in Jesus. Paying for our sins as a human being. Paying for our sins as God. That is God's genius work in the whole of history. That is God's central work because it resolves a fundamental problem in the heart of God himself. That's what Paul's getting at in the second half of verse 25. He he, uh, sent Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his Righteousness. God is absolutely just. Every sin that ever has happened, every offence that ever has been against God, must be punished. How can God maintain that absolute, perfect righteousness and save anyone? Well, he can do it if he pays for our sins and so demonstrates his righteousness. We should rejoice, you see, that God is absolutely just. It means that there is eternal justice. We should tremble that he is absolutely just. Because it means if we have not availed ourselves of what Jesus achieved on the cross, we will have to pay the price. 
And so we must seek what Jesus achieved on the cross for ourselves. Asking for it is a free gift. Jesus Christ, please let your death on the cross be for my sins so that God's just payment is in you, on you, because I can't bear it on me. The fact that God is committed to saving some actually demonstrates another side of what uh, the Bible calls God's righteousness. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, that is to be perfectly committed to punishing every sin and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Because you see this other aspect of God's righteousness is his absolute commitment to keep his promises. And his promise centrally is that he will have a people who are forgiven. And so God is righteous in the sense of being perfectly just and he is righteous in the sense of keeping his commitment to justify, to forgive, to put people right. And he brings those two together when Jesus Christ, God the Son, dies on the cross. That is how he did it. And we receive it only by faith. That is what Paul talks about when he talks about faith in Jesus Christ. How should we respond to that? Well, first of all, we need to respond with a deep sense of humility. Do you notice that? That's where Paul goes on, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. There is no person who has ever lived in history who could boast that they made themselves good enough to be accepted by God. Every single person who is accepted by God has accepted that they couldn't do it. Sometimes people say Christians are proud. I think sometimes they're confusing pride with confidence. But if there is pride, it cuts us off from God. All Christians are humble, confidently humble, but humble. And we should respond surely by running to Christ. Surely we've seen over the, uh, over the previous weeks that this is the only place to go. To run to this Christ who demonstrates God's righteousness in punishing sin and in forgiving sin.
And having run to Christ and sought his forgiveness, surely we should respond with joy, with gratitude, with freedom. There is nothing now that can separate us from God's love. With hope, there is now a bond between us and God which will last for all eternity and transcend even death. And a deep, deep desire to tell other people about it. If you are someone who has put your faith in Christ, maybe years ago, maybe in the not too distant future, you are in the most privileged position imaginable. You are experiencing the the beginnings of the satisfaction of that longing that Ian McEwan described as a, as a deep longing that he, Baxter himself, could, could barely articulate. Because God, you have been brought back to God. And if you are not yet there, then let me ask you, do you have that longing? If you do, you see, there is no amount of stirring yourself up to obedience that will satisfy it. There is just one simple thing to do. Say, Jesus Christ, I see what you did on the cross. I understand what you did on the cross. Please may I have the forgiveness that you won. All, says Paul, all who seek that, find it. Is that you?